And there are many here who are dressed casually, who inside are coiled tighter than a spring because you are dealing with something today. And some of you who are dressed ever so nicely are falling apart inside because of things that you or someone near to you is facing this new year, this very day. We live in a world that is uncertain. We live in a world where issues surround us and confront us and threaten us, it seems, day by day. And what control is there? We don't control it. We want to often. We live with a projection of the illusion of control, but that's all it is, an illusion, because we can't control the world around us. But for you this morning who face those things or will soon this year or know someone who will, God has a word for you. And that word is in the text that is before us today in Philippians chapter 4, a very familiar text. It's uh, verses 4 through 9 of Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> and the Apostle Paul addresses the church in Asia, in rather in Greece, in Philippi, Macedon. And he writes these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, let your... Uh, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are wonderful words. But they will fall on deaf ears unless your spirit gives hearing to those that you've brought here, ears to hear, eyes to see, through your eyes, O oh Lord. And I pray for your spirit's unction that I may faithfully and accurately proclaim what you have said in your word. And would you change me? Would you change these, your hearers this day? Fortify us for the day, the week, and the year ahead that we, we may indeed live lives of joy in the midst of an uncertain world. For we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. News headlines are always around us, and for those who have cable TV and watch the news, I don't have cable TV, I get my news elsewhere, but um, we're really pummeled, aren't we, with the news events, and it seems like news stations seem to 
thrive on selling crises and bad news and trouble much more than good news and uplifting things and things of joy. Some of that, perhaps, but for every dose of uh, something that's uplifting and encouraging, it seems to me we get through our national media about three or four doses of something that's startling or threatening or frightening. Internationally, there's war in Syria and threatened war in Iran. There's injustice in places around the world. Uh, we see uh, uh, the gang rapes in, in India and in other countries similarly where in Pakistan, uh, girls who dare to learn and, and women who dare to teach are, are threatened and actually killed. We see injustice in many other ways. Poverty. Poverty, many places around the world. I have been in Kibera, the largest slum in the world in Nairobi, right in the middle of the city. Half a million people jammed into one slum, living many of them in cardboard boxes day to day. Famine as natural catastrophes, drought and other things seem to blight our world. The tsunami of... Uh, Japan is not so far receded from our memory. And then there's the national things that we face, the news of high unemployment still, and so many of us struggling to make ends meet. Perhaps we're not considered unemployed, but only because there are those among us who have two or even three part-time jobs because without benefits, that's what it takes to make ends meet and to provide for our families. And we continue to struggle out of the, an economy that's in the midst of uh, the aftermath of what is called the Great Recession. The political divides among us and in our nation that are evidenced, for example, in, in uh, gridlock in Washington. The moral disintegration as we see the values of the sanctity of life and of marriage and family torn asunder by our courts and our politicians, and those who teach as professors in our schools and universities. If you add to that personal disasters of health, perhaps life-threatening diseases, financial disasters of loss of job or, or uh, other losses, family relationships as as uh, some families are facing tensions in marriage or between parents and child or have been already torn by divorce or separation. We're not immune as a congregation. We smile, put on a brave face, we greet people and are friendly, and inside we feel like we're dying. God knows. We may not tell another soul, but God knows. And God has a word for us. But small wonder that for many, peace as a word is an empty pipe dream, an empty euphemism. Perhaps you too face a crisis just now, uncertain what the coming week or year will bring. And if so, the good news God has for you today is this, that whatever our circumstances, those whose trust is in Christ have already, have a peace within that transcends all temporal crises.
Let me say that again. Whatever our circumstances, those whose trust is in Christ have a peace within that transcends all temporal crises. Perhaps someone's here saying, well, wait a minute. I belong to Jesus, and I don't feel that peace. What's wrong with me? What can I do about it? Well, let's listen carefully to God's word. He tells us. He tells us, first of all, that we have a responsibility, and second, that we have God's promises. We need to look at each of those in turn and not misunderstand either one. First, believers have a responsibility. Do you know in these short six verses, there are no less than seven imperative verbs. That means commands, verbs of command. Seven in six verses. This is not simply instructional didactic message. It's not simply narrative. It's not simply telling us the way things are, although it does that too. It's giving us commands to live by. And we need to understand God's commands properly. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But you notice that the beginning point is neither passivity, just saying, oh, well, what can I do? I just go with the flow. I have no control. Nor is it capitulation to anxiety or distress. In verse 6, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. See, trusting obedience is the alternative to anxiety. Trusting obedience. We obey God because we love him. Because we're grateful to him. Because we trust him under whose hands everything is in control. The turbulence of the nations, a motif that is strong throughout the Old Testament, is pictured in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation as well, but not in chapter 4. There we see a sea, as it were, of glass before the throne of God on high. Oh, you see, the turmoil of the nations of which Isaiah spoke is under the utter control of a God who reigns over all. And he loves you. He's in control over the circumstances of your lives. He's in control over the problems you face, the challenges that, with which you grapple. And he says, I'll be your God. But we must cultivate a proper mindset. Verse 4, he says, rejoice. Later on, as we'll come back to this again, he says, again, I say, Rejoice, that's pretty important. He's not repeating himself for the purpose of reading his own writing. Paul writes this letter because he wants us to understand that an attitude of joyful gratitude is essential to living the Christian life in its fullness as God intended. In verse 8, there's an uplifting focus and frame of reference or value system. Let's read that. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, we tend, to, I tend, often, 
to let myself be distracted by things that bother me that I read in the world around me or see unfolding in my presence. I'm bothered by it. I'll take that away and I'll ruminate. Often do that. And God's word to me and his word to you if you ever are in that situation. Maybe you have been. Oh, probably will be at some point. God says, concentrate on the good things. See God's hand around you. That doesn't mean calling something wicked good. It does mean saying, in the midst of wickedness, where is God's hand of grace and of light? Calling people to himself, to repentance and to trust and obedience in him. Now, that value system is not mere humanistic positive thinking. It's not Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking. It's much more than that. It's not Pollyanna's thinking the best of everything. And if you just think the best of everything, it suddenly will be that magically low. And as you know at the end of the story of the book by the name of Pollyanna, then you understand that uh, that didn't always work for her at the end. But no, what it means is that we begin to see events and circumstances around us through God's eyes. And as we see it through God's eyes, even our temporary, and it is temporary, bereavement, the most final in this world's eyes, separation that can be. But for Christians, for believers, even that looks different from the vantage point of seeing it through God's hand, God's eyes, God's purpose, from the viewpoint, the vantage point of eternity. If you watch a gardener, an avid gardener, who lovingly tends his garden every year, if you watch him plant his garden, you'll see that he takes seed that he has carefully prepared and plants it into the ground. He buries it, never to see it again. And why doesn't he weep over the seeds, over its demise? <laughs> we laugh at that. Why weep over a seed's demise? Well, <laughs> the answer's obvious. It's only a seed. Yes, but it's more than that. You know, it represents something. God tells us that our bodies are like seeds. Did you ever know that? The Apostle Paul says it's like a seed planted in our deaths to be raised in the resurrection of Christ as he comes at the final consummation of the world and the dead in Christ shall be raised and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Christ in the clouds to be with him forever. And so shall we be with him always. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In Romans 8, 28, the same Paul says, God works everything together for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. It's hard to see the good from our vantage point sometimes. The tears are real. We feel the pain. Jesus did too. He wept by the tomb of Lazarus. They weren't feigned tears. He wept over Jerusalem. They were not feigned tears. 
He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He was in all points tested, such just like we are, yet without sin. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that just as Christ was planted in death and raised to new life, so are we and shall we be. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul says, if we in this life only have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He says, I mean, why risk it? Ah, he says, why not just eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow we die. Ah, he says, that's not so. No, but Christ has risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those that slept, that is, died in faith in the Lord. Now, wait just a minute here. The first fruits, what does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits? There were at least three persons who are recorded in the Old Testament as having been raised from the dead. Did you know that? I'm not talking about Enoch who walks with God and was not because God took him. That is, he was translated into God's presence. I'm not talking about Enoch. I'm talking about, for example, the son of the widow of Zarephath raised by Elijah. I'm talking about the son of the woman of Shunem raised by Elisha. I'm talking about the unnamed man in the process of being buried whose funeral procession was interrupted by a raiding party of Arameans, of Syrians, and was unceremoniously dumped into the nearest tomb. And as soon as his body hit the bones of Elisha that had been buried there, he sprang to life. I imagine that may have turned the tide of that Aramean uh, raiding party. I wasn't there, <laughs> but I can just envision that. Three people in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised three. Jairus' daughter, the widow's son at Nain, and Lazarus. And then, of course, there are two more in the book of Acts, but that's after Jesus' own resurrection. There is, of course, Dorcas by Peter, and there's Eutychus by Paul. How is it that Jesus is described as the first fruits of those that slept, that is, that died in faith? Well, because each of those others was revived. Jesus was not revived. He was resurrected. Now, there's this difference. There's this difference. To be revived from death, to come back from death in the same body and life and the same stage that we were to resume our lives and then grow old and die. To have all the limitations and pain and, and uh, deficiencies. I have arthritis and uh, a number of other things that bother me. I won't go into, you know, you get old people like me together and we always have an organ recital. <laughs> Not going to do that. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's not just the revival. Jesus is resurrected, the first fruits. He and He alone have the glorified new body that each one of us is promised at the resurrection, at His coming. Did you know that? When God resurrects you at Christ's coming, if you're His, you will have your body, but it's different. It's yours. It's the same, but it's different. It's like Jesus. And Jesus could pass through the doors that were locked. 
He could be touched and the holes in his hands were there. He'll be the only one in eternity with wounds because they're trophies. Trophies of grace and love for us. But we will have no tears, no sorrow. For us, the old will be passed away. And God says, I will make all things new. To view things from the standpoint of eternity, my friends. We must cultivate a God-honoring pattern of living. Verse 5 says that we're to be gentle and that that gentleness is to be evident to all. Now, I... <clears throat> confession is good for the soul. I grew up as a very um, uh, driving kind of personality, highly competitive. Uh, my hobbies became debate, fencing, and chess, what do they all have in common? It's mano a mano, boy. <laughs> oh my goodness, I had a lot to learn when it came to pastoral counseling classes at seminary. <laughs> Jonathan and Jennifer Stuckert can appreciate that. Oh my goodness. You never argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven. You present the truth of God lovingly. God does the changing of the heart. What they can't do. By the way, when Jesus in John 3, 7 says, you must be born again, that's not a command. Did you know that? It's not. Not in the Greek. It really says, don't marvel <laughs> that I say to you, that's the command, that it is necessary. It's a statement that you must be born again. He's telling Nicodemus, you can't change yourself to view the world around you and all its trouble differently, to respond differently. Only the Spirit of God changing your heart. It's called regeneration. You can make that change. All your past sins could be forgiven and you'd be stuck because the next step you'd make would be sinful unless your heart is changed. You can't do it. God can. He does by the power, invincible power of his spirit at work through his word in those who hear it. And they respond. Those who are his chosen ones do respond. And that's our encouragement and our comfort today. We need to cultivate a God-honoring pattern of living gentle to all specific, verse 6, specific and thankful prayer in everything. By prayer and petition, let your requests be made known unto God. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he, the creator and governor of the universe, the judge of all the earth, he cares for you. Verse 9 in our text we read, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, he's saying, whatever I've modeled, this is the Apostle Paul, who says, be followers of me as I am of Christ. This Apostle says, those things that you've seen in me, modeled by me, put into practice. Rejoicing always, as he's already said in verse 4. That too is a command. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, these words. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The joy of your salvation. This mystery, this is scripture calls it, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you shine, the scripture says, as lights in a sinful and darkened world, as you live in step with the Spirit. Now, I need to make something very, very clear here. There are these mandates, these commands, these obligations, these responsibilities for believers, but brothers and sisters, these are not things that we just decide on our own that we are going to do. And by dint of self-discipline, we make ourselves better and think ourselves wiser. Oh, no. That's a dead end, literally. No, all of this is predicated on the prior encounter of a person with Jesus as Savior. The prior response to the gospel. Jesus is presented to us in the gospel, the good news. That that which we couldn't do, we can't do, you know. God has done for us. All those Old Testament sacrifices were symbols. They were object lessons in which God was saying, something, someone has to die to pay the penalty, the judgment, the judicial sentence of death upon sin which isn't just a little thing in the eyes of an, and of an infinitely holy God. And if someone else doesn't die for you, you will die in your sin. That's again and again stated in Scripture. And we are, each of us, left to ourselves, walking dead men and dead women. But every time God's people obeyed him and presented an offering that was an object lesson saying another must die that you may live blood must be shed that yours may be spared that you may live and every time they offered it it also said this of all the previous sacrifices as the, the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us of all those other sacrifices before it wasn't enough it wasn't enough why wasn't it enough? What's wrong with the animal sacrifices? After all, God had commanded it. Ah, this. An animal truly has innocence. And it was to be pictured by the fact that the animal was to be without blemish. Animals have no moral guilt. They are innocent. But an animal has no righteousness before God. No moral positive righteousness. You see, we must be righteous to stand before a righteous God. And none of us by ourselves are. The scripture says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I won't exegete the term, but just say that the Hebrew is gross. And God says that's what all our righteousness looks like to him. We need a righteousness, not our own. 
The righteousness he gives us in the person of his son who came and died in the stead of his people and rose again, shattering the, the grip of death, not only for himself, but for us. And he says, because I live, you will live also. In my father's house, he says, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that was in the upper room on the night he was betrayed, speaking to his small group of disciples, the inner core. And a few hours at most later, he would pray on the Garden of Gethsemane while awaiting his betrayer. And he would pray to the Lord and say, Lord, God, uh, Father, he would say, I will that those that you have given me may be with me where I am. Have you ever thought of that? That every time a believer in Christ passes from this life, that God the Father has answered his son's prayer once again. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And every other trouble we go through has purpose and meaning. To the Philippians, it involved persecution. And at the end of chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul says, unto you it's been granted not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his name. It has meaning. It has purpose. It may not be fun at the moment. It may not give us prestige or wealth or success in the eyes of the world, but it's doing something far more valuable. Because God, you see, is not so interested in the, what the world calls our success. He's interested in you and me, our character, our hearts, what he's forming within us. And what is that? Christ be formed in you. I'm in childbirth, says the Apostle Paul, as it were, figuratively speaking, until Christ is formed in you. That's what God's doing in your life and in mine, in the hard times as well as the good times. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's the good times that can be more dangerous to our souls than the hard times. Well, notice... Finally, that believers also have God's promises. Not only do we have a responsibility to cultivate a proper mindset and cultivate a God-honoring pattern of living, but also we have God's promises. Actually, three promises in these short six verses. First, that God's peace, God's peace, not the world's, God's peace will guard them. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a kind of peace that the world can't know and will never comprehend. Jesus said in that upper room to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, Peace I give unto you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle can say, the apostle Paul can say, therefore being justified by faith, faith in whom? In Christ, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we'll necessarily have peace with the world. Times we won't. We may not even always have peace within ourselves as we're wrestling through issues and as the Spirit of God works in our hearts through circumstances to teach us more of our Savior. But the most important thing is that relationship with God and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, not only will God's peace guard them, guard us, but the God of peace will be with us. Verse 9, we read, the God of peace will be with you. In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, that was a name of the Most High. Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. The Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, the deliverer of his people, is their shalom, their peace, their well-being their protection, their serenity. In uh, Hebrews 13, verse 5, uh, we read these words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews is quoting the promises of God. Quoting from where? Many times when God through the Old Testament and into the New says those words, he says to Abraham, I'll be with you. He says to Joshua, I'll be with you wherever you go. He says, as he, uh, the resurrected Christ uh, faces his disciples on the mountain in Galilee and appears to them, he concludes by saying, I'm with you. In fact, he says it more powerfully than that. He doesn't just say, I am with you. I will be with you to the end of the age or consummation of the age. He says, I with you am. It's emphatic. <laughs> The only place where the I am is separated like that with a prepositional phrase with you. It's, as, it's a picture to me of the Old Testament high priest who carries his people symbolically on that breastplate with the with jewels, the gems, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolically bearing them between his shoulders before the Lord. Our great intercessor does that. Do you know that when you pray the triune God the triune God is involved in a Trinitarian way. As you pray, the Spirit prays with your spirit in yearnings that can't be expressed. Jesus himself at the right hand of the Father intercedes for you even now. And the Father receives and hears those prayers and envelops you with his love in Christ. What a difference we have as believers to experience what we will experience. Jesus has not promised us a rose garden. He's not promised that we will not walk through dark valleys in the course of our life. But he's promised this, that he will be with us every step of the way. And he intends for us to do so not only for our sanctifying uh, growth, but so that the world around can see the difference it makes 
when someone walks those dark valleys that they face, but walks them with Jesus. And finally, the Savior who brought peace is coming for them. Verse 5, the Lord is near. You know, Paul has already said in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as Jesus ascends into heaven from, from the Mount of Olives, uh, two men in white apparel, I presume angels, appear to the disciples who are transfixed, gazing to the Lord, uh, to Lord Jesus as he's caught up into a cloud and is received and not seen any longer. And, and they're still lurk, looking, searching, where'd he go, where'd he go? And the two, two individuals who appear to them say, why are you standing this way, gazing intently into heaven? The same Jesus you have seen, taken up and received into heaven, will return in like manner as you have seen him go. He's coming back. Last verses of the whole Bible, last chapter of the book of Revelation, um, we read John's uh, recording for us. He who reveals these things says, Behold, I am coming soon. And the reflexive response instinctively from the apostle John on Patmos and in exile there is Maranatha. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. But until he comes at the close of the history, he is gathering his own to himself at their death. And until their deaths, he is in our lives working to refine our character to become mirrors of his own. And at the close of our lives, here's what God says in Psalm 116. Precious, hear that? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I'd like to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a part of which was wonderfully read for us very aptly by Paul Wagoner a little earlier in our service. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, now we know that if the earthly tent, he's talking about our bodies, physical bodies, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. 
We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The issue of balancing justice, good and evil, reckoning accounts in light, life is a great theme across all the so-called great religions of the world. They deal with it differently. This isn't a lecture on world religions, and I'm not going to go into all of those. But I'll say this, that what makes the truth of the Scripture unique is its emphasis not only on judgment after this life, but a resurrection of the body for the life to come. God promises us that. He says for us who are his, we need not fear anything, for we will not come under condemnation. We have, past tense, passed from death unto life. But those are promises. All these are promises only for those who know him. How do you know if you know him? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, we read, This is how we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. Hold on, before you think, well, that means that, that it's our works. No, no, the very next chapter, the Apostle John says, and this is his command, the root command, the basic command, to believe on the one whom he has sent. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? You're a substitute upon that cross. That his death was yours, that you can add nothing to it. That you need him and cannot bring anything in your empty hands before you, but cling to him. Have you acknowledged him as Lord in your lives? That everything you are and have and hope to be really belongs to him. He's not an addition sitting on a shelf, an adornment to make you respectable. He's Lord. You're his. He died for you to make you so. Let's pray.